Welcome back to another episode of Maroon Editor's Talk to People Who Spend Too Much Time on Twitter. Uh, I'm Miles, and I'm here with Lee Harris, and we went to a UCPU event entitled What is Socialism? And we spoke to a number of the panelists uh, afterwards about exactly that. We got to talk to Osida Nwanyevu, a New Yorker writer who used to work at Southside Weekly, as well as Sean Good, a Jacobin editor. And we also talked to Marianella Diaprila, who is a member of the National Political Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America uh, and is a socialist organizer here in Chicago. I was like, we're in the money church in New Chicago. Like, this is the econ building. Mm-hmm. This is like Milton Friedman's home. Yeah, I mean, it's literally a shrine. Yeah, it's, it's there's medals right over there, yeah. Yeah. Someone else told me you guys called it Money Church. I was like, <laughs> it used to be similar, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I feel like sometimes the way the argument goes for me, like the the clash of the debate between like capitalists and like whatever DSA members, sounds something like, well, the the like free market people say, you know. Uh, our system works super well, um, and you don't have like growth and and prosperity for all and expanding the pie. Everyone gets a slice. Like you get these kinds of truisms, and DSA members are just like, oh my god, look how much money Jeff Bezos makes. But you sometimes don't get the more substantive like, like response of what post-capitalist markets would actually look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we heard, what I enjoyed from the talk is we heard a lot about like like worker, um, uh, sort of what worker control looks like and when it's no longer the profit motive but the production motive that's driving things. But is there an argument that says that's still organized around output and production? Like, I guess what I'm saying is um, it, it seems like you're talking about love and reorganizing people's lives and the way they relate to each other, not just the economic sector. Mm-hmm. But if you just take control of the factories and make workers their own bosses, you still have bosses, right? Huh. I, that's, a, that's sort of a, a question of um, organization and democracy, sort of. Um, and there's obviously different um, ideas about what constitutes democracy. But you could say um, politicians are bosses in some sense, but we have, we have some say over who is in office. And um, certainly, we would, as democratic socialists, we'd like the system to be more democratic. Um, and but in, I mean, in a workplace, you, if you're electing your managers, um, there's a, there's an actual accountability mechanism there. Mm-hmm. Um, even even a, um, a kind of step short of that, with um, um, actually I, this was discussed tonight, was if you have workers on boards, that that is somewhat of a step in that direction. Um, certainly not far enough, but. Um, that I mean, you, if you have some sort of accountability mechanism in place, um, that's I think uh, just qualitatively different from um, an unaccountable boss. Um, another another form of uh, it's it's just like a it's a sort of unaccountable hierarchy, and that's like I think what socialists really do want to challenge, um, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the household, whether. Um, across society, that's really what, what socialists are interested in challenging is unaccountable hierarchies. Yeah, I also will say, you know, like your boss is usually accountable to someone and that's not you. Yeah. It's CEO, right? right. Of, of wherever you work. And I think that, that um, that's the fundamental difference. Like, okay, we can say that like you would be your own boss, I guess, if you, under socialism. I don't like to think of it that way because actually I think um, if we... If we, you know, if the, like 
um, five of us like were collectively like uh, you know pursuing some kind of enterprise, we would be accountable not just to ourselves but to each other and to the thing that we're trying to do. Um, and I think that is the key difference. I mean, I guess, I guess the question that I have about um, the democratic socialist model is, you know, as I've described it, you can tell me if I'm wrong and mischaracterize it in some way. But like, you have an economy where, there, as I've said during the debate, there are like big essential things that are nationalized, decommodified, and everything else is sort of workers owning firms uh, for themselves, not having a capitalist class appropriately their profit, but they, whatever they make, they keep and they're democratically making decisions. In that kind of model, I think some firms are going to do better than other firms. Um, maybe it's because workers don't do as well in one firm in managing the business as workers in another firm. Maybe people buying things like firm A's thing more than firm B. Uh, and so some groups of workers are going to do better than others. And I'm just wondering um, how, what, how that's dealt with in democratic social society and, and the extent to which we might still expect some kinds of inequality um, under that kind of a system. Mm -hmm. I think you would see some amount of inequality. I think one of the major differences would be that the level of inequality would be more subject to debate and discussion. Mm -hmm. So there isn't anything, I think you're totally right that um, just logically you would have some, some sort of inequality that was, um, that, that um, arose from, from having a, a kind of um, workplace democracy in this kind of market context would have inequality. But um, I think it, it wouldn't be inequality that was based on exploitation. So mm -hmm. it's fundamentally different. And then also, as I said, I think the level of inequality would be like a live political discussion. Mm -hmm. Obviously, um, a democratic socialist society would not, would, would still be full of, uh, full of conflict and disagreements about There'd still be value judgments. There'd still be differences in terms of what people think we should be allocating resources to on a on a broader societal level. Others would have different opinions. So I think any the level of inequality um, would be among um, uh, among those issues that people had contentious views on. Yeah, I also would say that um, given like your specific example, let's say like there's two. I don't know, farms and like mm -hmm. one grows like better kale than the other. Um, I think that, yeah, definitely there would be a kind of inequality in terms of like maybe how much um, like of their product they're able to sell, etc. But the, I think the diff, the main difference or one of the main differences would be that uh, the, the, that inequality would not be life threatening or yeah. devastating yeah. Life, yeah. Like, like the inequality that we have under capitalism <laughs> where, you know, like you don't have healthcare, for example, or like you don't have ed education, or like, um, you know, you you're like risking like if you like if you're let's say you're like a freelancer or whatever, and like if you have a bad month, like maybe you can't make rent. Um, and I think under a democratic socialist society, like the we the the room for like that kind of um, well in a democratic social society, there just wouldn't be that kind of like life threatening or like devastating levels of of just like. Uh, extreme poverty. I think this, this is somewhat different from the question you're asking, but mm -hmm. I think, um, and obviously in a market economy, you would also have firm failure. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I th the point that I think Marnell is making is is that yeah, you, you'd have firm failure, but it wouldn't be 
Like it wouldn't, wouldn't be, be it wouldn't be yes. glamorous. Yeah. 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 So I think that's an like a, an important point, sort of worth underscoring. Yeah. So, so like some of the conversation as I took it was kind of like this, like within and or against idea of like how do you so to your Rosa Luxemburg quote, like how do you pass reforms within the system while we're against it? Um, it seems to me like there are things that are better and worse under capitalist logic. So like, mm. like people say like rent reform, like uh, rent ceilings and minimum wage are terrible because you lay off like workers get laid off as soon as you raise the minimum wage. Whereas there might be other things where like Medicare for all seems like it. Um, it, it it actually like operates at a different kind of scale and reforms the logics themselves. Do you think that's like? Do you think that's like? Do you think? Yeah, that, like, I think that there is are totally fair. Within that work that like it seems yes. to be on face true that maybe minimum wage actually because we live in a capitalist society does end up screwing workers and like getting workers laid off. Is yeah, that a, is that a reasonable? I think that is a very reasonable way to describe it. I think this gets at the thing that I was talking about earlier: how some reforms are revolutionary reforms, right? Because they deal blows to capital and because they increase worker power. I would argue that. Um, minimum wage, a, a higher minimum wage, does also increase worker power because it increases their quality of life. Um, but it is in some ways a more kind of bastardizable reform by capital because they can say, well, we just don't have enough money to give you that. So, you know, see ya, like however many workers. Um, but what we have to understand is that it's not that there's not enough money is that that money is being pocketed, right? By like one person probably. Yeah, yeah so. Um, yeah, so what I was gonna say is, and, and forgive me if I'm mischaracterizing what you said, but I think what you were getting at is that you're maybe, like the way you're thinking about a lot of these issues isn't philosophical enough to mm -hmm. identify or label yourself as a socialist. Right. Um, and I guess what I'm a little bit confused by is that lots of people who identify as liberals or as conservatives or even as socialists aren't, mm -hmm thinking about these things very philosophically. Right. Um, or at least, you know, plenty of people in my life that I know aren't, aren't thinking um, on a very abstract plane about these things. Their, 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 their logic is, is not that abstracted. And I'm, I'm guessing, I'm wondering, like, A, if not a socialist, do you have something that you, like, point out that you label yourself as? Um, and if not, why do you, why does the, why does the philosophical angle prevent you from doing that? I mean, I think most socialists would call me a social democrat, and I think I'd be willing to call myself that as well. It's not because I'm opposed to socialism per se, it's just as you say, I, I don't think that I've thought hard and long enough about the kind of society I want to, to see at the end of the day. I just sort of see particular policy problems, and it seems obvious to me that the ways to solve them involve moving left in, in a serious way. Um, but the step beyond that is like, what our economy should look like in the ideal state, or, or you know, those kinds of large-scale questions, I just feel personally, and people can come to their politics in different ways in their own individual lives, I just feel like personally, I haven't read Marx since I was here, in a very serious way, and I just feel like I should, uh, in order to, to firmly call myself something. And as I said during the, uh, the debate, I, I really think it's important, and it's maybe um, Others disagree, but I, I do think it's kind of important to ensure that people are talking about a firm thing when they mention an ideology like socialism, because there is a risk, and we've seen this in history, of things being branded as sort of like the bleeding edge of what is possible and things just kind of stopping there. Um, I think that people are adopting the label of socialism uh, very understandably uh, in defiance. The right has 
branded all kinds of things people like and think they should be entitled to. As socialists, the economy, as it's currently structured, has beaten down a lot of people. And so a lot of desperate people say, you know what, what is the, the furthest thing? What is the opposite of this? Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm going to reach for that. I'm a socialist. Fuck you. you know? And I, I, I think that's an important impulse. I just think that in, in my own life, in my own sort of thinking about politics, uh, I just sort of have to do a lot of the, uh, the work of reading and, and thinking and, and um, asking myself hard questions about what I want society to look like. And as somebody who follows electoral politics mostly and, and uh, thinks about specific policies, I, I just don't think that I have or give myself the chance to do that very often. Um, you're also welcome to talk about this, whether, um, whether you agree that you have to come at this from um, sort of the one perspective that, that says you have to you know, read and consider and think about the world you want to see or whether there's like an alternative of like seeing that the world is unsatisfactory to you and using that as your springboard to like imagine the world that you would prefer. I think people come to socialism in a, through a lot of different ways. I, I mean, I personally came to it because I kind of, well, I, I, I was very, uh, immigrating to the U.S. was a very radicalizing experience because I immigrated from a very large city in, in Argentina, from Buenos Aires, to a very small rural town um, in West Tennessee of about 4,000 people where there was people were horribly racist and xenophobic and it was uh, shortly um, after 9-11 had happened and so that in and of itself was a very radicalizing experience where I thought well you know like why is my librarian telling me that it's my fault that her husband lost his job like that doesn't seem right um, and then, and I was a teenager and I was like thinking about these things and then like, um, started reading, I remember like reading in a history class, like I had this history teacher who like, was like awful and I like really didn't like him and I, and he would like talk shit about like socialists all the time and I was like, oh, but there's something good in there because of this guy doesn't like it. Uh, and so I was like reading about it and I was like, wow, this sounds great. Like, this is so interesting. Um. And then I went to college and I went to architecture school, so I was like mostly just like uh, working on models um, and not really thinking about politics too much. Um, Obama was president, so I think, um, you know, it was like a kind of lull um, in my political life. And then um, my family was living in Chile at the time, and uh, so I was traveling a lot back and forth between the US and Chile. And that was right, right when the uh, student movement was happening there. So I got pretty involved. Um, I was close to, I had friends who were really, really involved. And so I was just close to it. And I was like, oh, this is like really interesting. And then later on, I, um, I was in a union as a graduate student. Um, and that's really when like all of my politics like became very solidified. Um, and I thought, well, like here's a space where I can have power. Um, and then I was in a union um, later on as a, I was, when I was a, a teaching at, um, at the university level. Um, and then uh, 2016 happened and um, I joined DSA because uh, it seemed like I thought, well, I'm definitely a socialist and finally here is an organization that I can join. 
Um, until then, I, I didn't think that there were any organizations that were kind of worth my time, uh, quote unquote, um, or that I felt really identified with. Um, but anyway, that's a very long-winded way to say that everyone comes to this from their own talks and people are radicalized like just in their work because they get like fucked over all the time and like they don't make enough money and like their lives are you know like not what they would like them to be and they don't see a way out and then you know they're presented with an alternative vision and they say okay well like that sounds that sounds great and then maybe they read or maybe they go on strike and they they exercise their power as workers and then they say okay well like um this is this is feels good. This is like the right thing. I like got something by exercising my power as a worker. Um, we should organize society so that we can do that more. So like one of the, one of the other things in, in, in the event we just um, listened to that, that struck me was was the question about um, automation. I guess how do you how do you escape from sort of inevitability? Like this idea that that socialism is inevitable because work will be done away with by automation. I don't think it's inevitable at all. I mean, no. you can you can mm-hmm. very very easily think about ways in which a lot of work is automated, um, which also is inevitable. I, I haven't even, I'm not completely convinced that auto, we're gonna see full automation yeah. or anything. I think that's, mm-hmm. you look back in history and that's many, like, it's sort of a, a, every few decades there's this kind of, um, these panic calls and warnings that like, uh, all the jobs are gonna be, are gonna disappear. Yeah. There's gonna be mass automation, mass unemployment because of automation. Um, and it's never really happened. Um, and that's, that, that's obviously for a variety of reasons, but I'm, I'm not sure it's gonna be that different now. Um, but I think the, the point that, I'm not sure who, was, who made it in the, in the panel, but it's the basic point I think of this question is just like, these are like political questions. It's not really a technological thing. Mm-hmm. It's the basic question is just like who owns the robots mm-hmm. and can we actually determine that we want to work less because we have um, a more say in the way that our government works and more say in our workplaces. Because it's, yeah, I mean, we could very easily, um, you know, work like 20 hour weeks right now if we wanted to, like, if we wanted to institute that and we wanted to spread work out more, um, more broadly and more equitably. Um, it's not a, um, again, it's not a technical thing that's preventing us from doing that. It's just like who actually has power in society um, and workers don't have very much power in society and so we can't, that, that sort of option is completely off the table. Um, and that's, that's why, yeah, you, you saw it throughout the, the 20th century, like the, the prediction that Keynes made wasn't invalidated because he didn't foresee some sort of technological thing and we didn't like, we didn't like increase productivity enough or something to make it so we could have 10 hour, 20 hour work weeks. No, it's just like, like workers didn't amass enough power to be able to make those um, sorts of decisions that they wanted to work less rather than um, working more. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask two follow-up questions kind of out of that? Um, like. One place I feel like I hear what you're talking about expressed is in this debate over UBI, because it's originally very much a right-wing Milton Friedman, um, uh, EITC, the, the, 
it is Maybe something that comes from Charles yeah. Murray has made yeah. this argument, mm-hmm. and yeah. yet you see leftist versions of it that people mm-hmm. defend seriously. So I'm curious if you think that like gets co-opted in a way where like everyone's getting some money, like more money every month, but it mm-hmm. but capitalism adjusts so that it doesn't make them any better. Like they're sort uh-huh. of hell hell world versions of this too. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're more optimistic. Um, and then the other question I want to ask is about the Green New Deal because, mm-hmm. in some ways, it's like it's the it's the laundry list of, I, I get they don't, that's how you're not supposed to describe it, but it's, it, it responds to the two big problems of the economy and, mm-hmm. um, and the climate. Um, but on the other hand, it is a very Keynesian, I mean, it's New Dealist, right? It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a growth-centered, maybe not in all its forms, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm curious about that because it's clear that we need to transition to cleaner, better forms of production, but mm. it is very much driven at growth and production rather than, at, for example, degrowth and, yeah. and scaling back. Like, I'm just curious how you guys think about uh, those issues. So UBI, Green New Deal. I mean, I think there's a lot of writing on the left, or there has been, about good and bad UBI. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, it does start from the right-wing place, but I don't think the right-wing versions of it. So, like, Charles Murray's version of UBI is, like, well, you get rid of like food stamps and like every other like program, mm-hmm. you replace it with like money that is like worth one fourth <laughs> of everything that you took away. So that's like not plausible. In um, but look, I mean, I think that the left version of that does what I said Medicare for all did. It's not just something that helps people by giving them money, but it's something that builds worker power because you have this other set of income uh, that you're not depending on your employer for. And that improves your bargaining position, I think, as Mariana put it, when you're, when you're asking for things in a, a labor-organizing context. And you come closer to a place where you don't have to depend on your employer for everything, cause anything, because and your fellow workers are running things. So I think that's, that's the left couching of UBI. I think that automation uh, complicates the conversation. Frankly, I don't think that, it, I don't think that we're going to see this sort of wave of mass automation of people are predicting where like every job but like a few is going to be a robot or something. Robots suck right now. They've sucked for a long time. <laughs> and of course, you know, as was previously said, this is ultimately a political question. If people decide that they don't want to see all of the truck drivers lose their jobs, they will just ban automation in truck driving. And there will be a movement, I think, if, if it really does become likely that we'll see mass displacement in a big way. I think there's going to be a lot of political resistance to that if it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to obviously benefit uh, the working class. Job guarantee, I mean, I think that there was like a sentence in the resolution about worker power or something. I can't really remember it right now, but it was like mentioned mm-hmm. in passing. Um, I think that the, the question of how much ideally should we be consuming in the first place is a really important one, even outside of the climate context, right? Like, is moving to a society that's more equitable worth Maybe the sacrifice, you won't have as much stuff when you go to the store and like five different kinds of toothpaste, you know? Uh, I feel like that's a trade-off people should talk about. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think people are resistant to socialism. It's not mm-hmm. my reason. Uh, but it's one of the things that people talk about a lot in their vision of what a social society looks like. Less choice, you have to do with this is a, a lifestyle that is uh, less fun in some ways, you don't get to buy as many things and, and so on. It's an important question, but the climate makes it, I think, existential because I, I think it's, it's just true that there are certain things we're going to have to do away with um, if we're going to live sustainably. 
uh, cows and beef, sorry. Like, <laughs> we have to have less of that, we just, we just do. Um, and I think that that kind of sacrifice is going to be the hardest part of selling a, a program um, for climate adaptation. So I think that, that there needs to be a real discourse about how much we consume as a society, how much of it is, is really necessary to living a good life, what is a good life, you know, these kinds of big questions that, again, don't really get talked about very much um, in a discourse that is very focused on particular policy solutions to very specific problems. You need to have a broader philosophical discourse about the society we live in and the kind of society that we want, and I really hope that we move to that place very soon. Um, did you ask? Yeah, um, I, I think on the question of kind of consumption in the climate, it's definitely an important one. I think, I think it's almost more useful to think about individual and sort of collective consumption, because if you have, if you build out like amazing public goods and you just build these cities that, you know, you can get around really easily, you have these amazing parks, you have amazing libraries, you have amazing playgrounds, you can live a really low carbon lifestyle. Um, and I think that's the kind of conception that, um, that socialists would have. Um, so it's not a matter of, I, certainly there are some Americans that consume way too much, but I, I think there are a lot of Americans that actually don't have enough. Um, and so I think it's important not to make uh, the socialist um, vision some vision of austerity. Uh, because a lot of people do not have enough, and it's not because um, you know we're not in the climate crisis because like you know poor and working class people in America like consume too much. That's just like not mm -hmm. just objectively not true. Mm -hmm. um, instead, we you know you can very easily envision um, a country in which like there's high speed rail everywhere, and you know people aren't relying as much on cars. Um, you have um, yeah, again, you, you just have like amazing public goods like that are actually the best, the best sort of society you can offer. Um, and sort of public, public it becomes like the kind of gold standard of like things that we all have. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so I think that's, that's like the kind of We've, and we published we published some Green New Deal stuff in Jacket over the last couple of weeks, um, and I think hit in on some of these um, some of these topics um, and sort of how to frame um, a kind of socialist vision or a socialist Green New Deal, I guess you could say. But I think a, a very important part of that is um, making clear that we're not offering like more austerity. We you can we can actually have a really be, like the vast majority of people can have a very good life. Um, so, how do you how do you transform the the accumulation of, of worker power in America? Um, maybe not transform, but how do you also turn that into a cause of building worker power abroad that um, changes the relations of production in those countries that produce a lot of materials and, and consumables that we use? Like, how do you how do you build those sort of transnational workers' movements? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I do want to say, though, I don't think that, you know, um, doing socialism means that, like, you would, you know, like, 
like you were saying, like automatically like have to consume less. I think, yes, obviously we would consume differently and maybe we wouldn't have 10 different kinds of toothpaste mm, yeah. to buy. And seven maybe, for seven or something. Yeah, maybe we wouldn't, you know, have 10 different airlines that all fly at the same routes at wildly, wildly different prices. I think that is one of the most like absurd things to me about um, aspects of like how of like capitalism to me like the um, uh, air travel industry is like one of the most absurd um, but um, just because of the amount of infrastructure that it takes it just makes so much more sense to uh, consolidate it but um anyway uh, that's just an aside um, your question was about how do we build a, an international workers movement um, and I think that there are a lot of um, there are a lot of historical examples of, of attempts to, to do this, but I think it um, does have to do with with workers building power at home in their respective homes. And then um, it does take a massive amount of coordination to, for example, uh, for workers, um, let's say at, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a Coca-Cola, uh, huge uh, corporation maybe withholding their labor their labor simultaneously in two different parts of the world we have the internet now uh, the working class is the internet now which is an amazing um, organizing tool and so I, I think that I mean I'm being very simplistic about it and obviously um, I don't believe that we could have socialism in just one country um, and that, I, I said this earlier, just as capitalism, it's a global system, so will socialism have to be if it has any chance of surviving, if it has any chance of surviving capitalist attacks, like, you know, um, what we were talking about in Cuba, Cuba and Venezuela earlier. Um, but I think, like anything else, it does start with, with um, socialism from below, right? It's not just about, okay, like, now we have socialism in two countries, and now there can be, like, some, like, international coordination. I think the working class has to be coordinated, and um, we have the fucking internet. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, could, could I add on, uh, on the question of internationalism? Um, yeah. Uh, to Miles' question and ask, for a long time there was, um, I guess, like, the... Waltzer dissent magazine sort of strain of just war theory and ideas that you could have mm. war military action that isn't imperialist mm. maybe and capitalist and yeah. driven by these forces um, mm -hmm. like I guess I, I don't hear that much about it on the left Thank these God. days but yeah. is that is that still around and if not how do you think about uh, war after imperialism um, well I think the question of internationalism is just like super central to socialism mm -hmm. and it's a good it's a very good thing that we're thinking about it in those terms again because mm -hmm. um, part of the I mean social democracy did lots of great things um, in Western Europe in the post-war period but one of the things that did not do very well was think about things in international terms it was it was basically about having this national economy that um, you know was based on kind of uh, continued growth and um, sort of distributing the, the proceeds of that more equitably and you know increasing worker power and stuff in some ways but doing it on a, a national level um, and at times even um, engaging in imperialist actions I mean social democracy is certainly has blood on their hands um, but anyways uh, I think so I think it's very good that we're thinking about it in international terms again, um, I think the, um, 
one of the one of the biggest things that we can do in the U.S. is actually just build a strong socialist movement and and build worker power because that will open up amazing possibilities around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, just just not having the boot of U.S. imperialism on their mm-hmm. necks. Um, if you think about what happened uh, again in Chile, especially in Latin America, just just throughout, but. Um, if, if the U.S. is not intervening to overthrow, you know, even kind of vaguely reformist governments, that, that allows um, workers to actually build power in those countries. And so I think, yeah, one of the best things that we can do is actually focus our efforts in the U.S. and also try to develop international ties, too. But it's like, you know, like socialism is about kind of the working class emancipating themselves. And so... It's not really a matter of of us like sort of determining in the U.S. like how workers are going to act elsewhere. It's doing what we can in the U.S., building the ties that we can, and helping helping um, and helping in solidaristic ways. Um, but yeah, just I think um, having that international approach is um, is very very important. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think all of that about building an international working class is true. One of the first um, left-wing things I can remember reading in high school is No Logo by Naomi Klein, mm-hmm. which outlines the sweatshop economy uh, in a way that was very sort of viscerally affecting to me. Um, and I think that it, it starts with things like you know international labor standards, environmental standards, making sure that there is some common framework for labor rights that exists internationally so that no matter where you are, a company can't jump from one country to another and exploit mm-hmm. that uh, working population. I think beyond that, you need to build um, solidarity across classes. And I think that that comes from making people aware just how the things that they get in this country are often produced. I think that when you have moments where people are exposed to the sweatshop economy, like the, the blood diamond economy, that people react very viscerally and they, they want change. Um, they want people to be treated better. And I think that being frank about those connections within our economy is important and making people understand that they're not just isolated within the United States, that they're part of a broader thing. Mm-hmm. The capitalism certainly moves across borders and things are produced uh, by people in different parts of the world. And, and I think that the first step to making people understand that in a real way is showing them you know, what, what workers in other countries go through. Sanders just announced, obviously. Um, uh, there was some speculation that he took a little longer because he was thinking about running, like, a really radical... Like, he's, he's the furthest left by far, but but running an even more radical campaign than he had in 2016. You guys are all plugged into sort of the political scene. Do you know if there are any uh, planks on the way that we haven't heard about for, for Bernie uh, 2020? Or if not, what would you most like to see? I mean, what I've heard is that he's going to come out with a job guarantee plan, um, which would be to the, you know, something more ambitious than his 2016 platform. We already see candidates like Harrison Booker are doing things in that sort of like direction, but from what I understand, Sanders is going to put out like an actual job guarantee plan. And it's in the Green New Deal that people have sort of normally mm-hmm. signed on to. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think, and Amy Klobuchar thinks that Coates wants to do I don't think she's for it back there. Uh, but 
you know, I wrote a piece last week arguing that Bernie should do just this. Like, if he wants to distinguish himself in a field mm. where people have moved to where he is, he should just move a little bit more left and people understand that he's offering something different. Otherwise, I think that people in the Democratic Party who are progressive and who voted for Bernie Sanders because he was the most progressive option have sort of superficially, like a lot of other candidates, to look at and choose from. They're not as plugged in as extremely online people, you know? Like, they, they just sort of say, oh, you know, everybody's for Medicare for all, so I'll just sort of choose the person who, who I like the most. And, and I don't know that it matters. Maybe it should, it should, you know, if you want to evaluate how likely the people are to do these things. It should matter that Sanders has said he's for this forever. I don't know that the average voter cares as much as an activist would about that. Um, so if he really wants to distinguish himself, given all that, I think that he should offer a different slate of proposals that looks very different from what the candidates um, competing with him uh, are offering. I think I also hope that he will do, uh, and I feel like a crank every time I push this, is that he should push for procedural reforms within our federal system of government that make it possible to pass Medicare for All and everything else. And that, in and of themselves, would be good because they expand democracy in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, he has not done this. Uh, and I, I just don't know how to even interpret it. the primary <laughs> campaign in a, in a system where, a situation where people, nobody said they were willing to do this. He's got to get um, filibuster. He has to. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no two ways about it. Um, and this is, this is the thing that I think would unlock American democracy in a way that makes a lot of left policy really possible. Mm -hmm. you, you just have to bring the Senate to a place where it's not, obviously not fully democratic, but like you only need a simple majority. Um, that, that, is a, that would be a sweeping moment in the history of American policy making. Mm -hmm. It would make a lot of things possible. You really could do, in the first one, he said like today or yesterday, in the first 100 days he wants to do Medicare for all and Green New Deal and $15 minimum wage. Like if you really, if you got rid of the filibuster, you really could do all of those things. Yeah. If, assuming you got democratic support uh, to a level where it was a simple majority. So I don't know. Like he has to, he has to. I think distinguish himself on the policy level, and also distinguish himself in terms of his willingness to upend American political norms and really make robust left policy possible uh, procedurally in a system that is almost. <laughs> could not have been more perfectly created to thwart left-wing policies. I think for, I'll speak a little bit too, I agree with everything you're saying. I also think you should read Megan Day's article in the New Jacobin if you haven't, which is like wielding the imperial presidency, is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. um, and it has like all of the, all of the possibilities, like including some very like far-flung ones about what like Bernie could do as president. And it's, it's um, really interesting because it like kind of, uh, just through executive orders. Just through executive yeah. orders, exactly. Um, kind of like opens up your uh, like horizon possibility, and then she, anyway. Um, but I think that um, for us as DSA, the way that we have to relate to a Bernie campaign, and I think it's totally true that like the average person is like, well, they kind of all look the same, and mm -hmm. also like maybe I don't want a dude in the White House again. Yeah. So maybe I'll vote for Elizabeth Warren because like they're similar. I think for us as DSA, what we have to do is raise the level of not only interest in uh, politics, but also more more importantly, the level of class consciousness that helps people. Um, first of all, find stakes for them and for their lives in um, in who who is president and in how politics are run and in whether there's a filibuster or not. Um, 
And also to distinguish um, between candidates like Bernie and Warren, who are the, you know, the two who are like, I think the furthest left and the most compared to each other. Um, and so not only so that they vote for Bernie in this go around, but so that they pressure Bernie when he fucks up and so that they, they find they have stakes in a Bernie presidency so that they continue to fight for for um, you know their power even through and after a potential Bernie presidency. So I think that's our task on the left. Yeah. To just add on to that, I just think that mass action is just so critically important. Yes. I don't think anything yeah. happens yeah. unless there is a genuine large-scale movement mm-hmm. demonstrations and actions yeah. pushing for the things people want to see happen. I think a perfect illustration of this is the Green New Deal, which I do not think anybody would be talking about at all if there had not been a sit-in in November, challenging Nancy Pelosi to think about it. Um, I think that's that's, that's what it takes. I mean, I I don't know that, you know, talking about the filibuster, it's like a dry procedural issue. If people are, like, at Bernie Sanders' office and, like, harassing Bernie Sanders Mm -hmm. to move on this issue, I think he's going to do it. Um, I think that other Democrats are going to be forced to at least consider it, even if, if they're not right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think that, that large-scale mass action is going to be so critically important to making sure that all of the things that people want to see happen are actually pushed through when the going gets tough. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and I think that's actually one of the reasons, I guess you will touch on this in the panel, but I think it is one of the main differences between Warren and Sanders. Mm-hmm. He is, He's better positioned to galvanize the kind of mass movement that, that we need and the kind of like interplay between elected officials and movements and like interplay between like top and bottom. He's he's someone that you're not gonna have you you you're not gonna look to like this elected person to do everything. He's someone that's gonna actually say, No, you need to go on strike, you need to be building um, power in your communities. Um, and so yeah, but I I, I think Asia's point is very very important too that um, he does have to distinguish himself because on a policy level too because um, because there has been so much movement leftward and a lot of it's um, a lot of it's kind of purported movement that isn't actually going to be taken it doesn't actually have a lot of um, genuine backing but it is it is something that like the average voter isn't necessarily going to be able to distinguish between um, raft of candidates that all ostensibly support Medicare for all. I just wonder how quickly it's going to evaporate after the primary is over, that movement. I mean, so Christian Gillibrand was like one of the first people, for example, in the field to say she was for a job guarantee. Mm-hmm. And now I think that today it was reported that she is, that has one of the Pfizer executives as one of her like, fundraisers or something. Yeah. Like it's, some of this stuff is just going to go away yeah. and, and sort of it'll be like it never happened uh, as soon as they don't have to compete with Sanders. Yeah. Totally. You know. One very, um, yeah. very last thing on this, and then um, we'll let you go. Um, but um, on the Warren Sanders question, um, here's what I'm wondering: like Warren certainly has visit, like pitched herself to the left to Sanders people as interested in structural reforms of capitalism. She says she's a capitalist to her bones, mm-hmm. but I find that compelling, um, especially thinking about the way in which financialization has taken a lot of power out of politics as a whole, like out of, at least in my own view, out of political organizing and into the hands of CEOs. And maybe politics is how you seize it back. Mm -hmm. But my question would be, why is Warren better than Sanders on Wall Street? Or I'm sorry, the other way. Why, 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 if you care about 
finance and capital power do you vote Sanders and not Warren? On the question of Wall Street, I think they're basically the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think, again, just the distinguishing factor is um, they come from different political traditions. And um, extremely different. Yeah, and what we need right now is someone that's interested in um, kind of stoking the grassroots and calling for people to, you know, fight their bosses and um, engage in sit-ins and demonstrate and call out, you know, um, Wall Street or Big Pharma or whoever. And I think Bernie's the the one that's going to do that. So I think, yeah, I I think Bernie, um, another kind of key difference, uh, to be specific, Bernie cut his teeth in like the last throes of like the new socialist movement. And Warren was a Republican until 1996. Um, So I think that that, I mean, it's just just a way to illustrate um, how different their um, kind of tradition or their historical, um, like, uh, their histories are and their political, like, underpinnings are. So that's one thing. Um, I think the other thing is that, yeah, Warren is definitely a progressive. And I, like I said before, I think she's probably uh, the furthest to the left in the field um, of the Democrats right now. Um, other than Bernie and we need progressives like Warren um, to, uh, to to pass the kinds of things that we want to pass um, the kinds of policies that we want to pass but we need Bernie I think at the helm because he's the only candidate that's saying um, you know this movement is not about seizing the presidency only he says this himself you know it's not just about winning the, the nomination it's not just about winning the presidency but it's about building a movement and I think that that, it, to me, is the key difference. Um, and it's a difference that is not insignificant, but although it is a difference that I think a lot of people are not aware of what it means. And so again, I think the job of the left is to um, show people what it means um, in really active ways, put people in struggle, um, and, and help them learn in that way. Yeah, I think. Well, I'll let you go on the yeah. rest of your evening. Um, but thanks for, thanks Thank for making you. time. Well, yeah. Absolutely. Um, let us know when the article comes out. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely.